Hi, I'm Jeff Watts, and I wanted to welcome you to the Renaissance Podcast. We are so excited that you have chosen to listen and join with us as we strive to reach the heart of our city with the truth and love of Jesus. And we know that God is doing amazing things in our community, and I am blown away at how many people have told me that Renaissance has provided a place for them to rediscover Jesus. It's given them a caring church family to be a part of, and has helped to transform their lives. If you're one of the men and women who have been encouraged, helped, and strengthened because of what's happening here at Renaissance, then I'd like to ask you to become an investor in what God is doing in our city. And here's one way that you can do that. Go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them. Enjoy the podcast and thank you so much for being a part of this community. Welcome to Renaissance. My name is Jeff, and I'm one of the leaders here at the church. So if you have a Bible with you, why don't you turn to Genesis chapter 32? Genesis chapter 32. I see a few people moving around if you brought a Bible with you. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have some underneath the seat backs close to you. Underneath the seat, there's a hardback black Bible that you can use. And Genesis is the first book in the Bible. So just turn a few pages in, and we're looking for Genesis chapter 32. And if you don't own a Bible, that's a gift to you. You're welcome to take one home. You can write your name in it and keep it. Um, and we will put words up on the screens for you too. So if you don't want to do any heavy lifting by, you know, reading today, you can just follow along on the screens. God bless you all. Thank you for coming. Anyways, I, here's, a, here's a, this is something that happened to me this week. Uh, every once in a while, just in the normal course of daily living, God will just come alongside and um, just remind me of something. M many of you are nodding. You've had moments like that where it's like you knew something at one point and then you get busy with life and then maybe, you, I won't say you forgot it or you're disobeying something, but just all of a sudden God just reminds you. That's why this is important. Um, one of the things we love to do every week at Renaissance is study our Bible. And, and when I was preparing for this week's message, God came alongside me and just reminded me that the Bible is so unique. It, it's so different than any other books that we'll ever read, primarily because it, it helps us know who God is. It is the primary mode by which we understand and know God's character, his attributes, who he says he is to be. Everything that we know about God first starts from scripture. And when we're reading the Bible, we're reading the stories, and I say stories intentionally because they are stories, but do not mishear that. It does not mean they're fictional stories, that the stories of the people in the Bible as they encounter God um, give us sort of an idea of how we can expect God to respond with us. One of my most fav favorite passages in all of scripture is Hebrews chapter 13, verse eight, and it just says this, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever. And that's why when we study books like Genesis that really have to deal with a people living in a culture far removed from ours by centuries and location, that when we see God dealing with the, the people of God in Genesis, we can see his compassion, his care, his empathy, his, his sternness, his justice, his mercy, all of these things, as he's, as he's dealing with them, we can understand through Hebrews 13, 8, that God also will deal with us in like kind. And so even though the Bible, say it with me now, is not about me, say it's not about me, it's not about you. 
It's not about me. The Bible is about God, God dealing with his people. And when we read those stories and see how God deals with them in their life situations, then we can expect the same type of thing in us. Is, is this making sense? So as college is coming to a close, a lot of graduates, you know, and some people coming home for summer, right? And we're excited to have our college family back with us. Um, one of the things that I remember from college is that at the end of the semester, the, the professors or the instructors would push across a survey to you. And they say, hey, just fill out this survey. And the idea was they asked questions about the class, questions about the material, questions about their teaching technique. Were they good, not good? And you got to give them a rating, right? And, and the idea behind all of this, I'm sure the administration thought, was that it would help the instructor become a better teacher, right? I don't know that it worked very well until they did this one thing they made those results public to future students. Did you know this? So now when you sign up for a class, you can check that COM 160 class you're thinking about taking and look at all the survey results that every other student who's taken that professor. And when they say things like, this is the easiest class I've ever taken, everybody signs up for that class. <laughs> yes? Hey, when you're taking COM 110, make sure you get Professor so-and-so because he is gravy, right? And so we look towards that. So even though we've never taken those classes with that Professor, we look what other people have experienced, and then we can expect to see the same thing in our lives. The crazy thing about that is some people lie in their surveys. I once heard someone say this, that professor was the worst professor I've ever had, and I had to suffer through it. I, in fact, I never wore my seatbelt on the way to class hoping I'd get in a crash and, and, <laughs> and perish because this class was so bad. And yet, and yet, when they filled out the survey, they said it was the best class ever. And their thinking is like, if I had to suffer through it, then I want somebody else to suffer through it. <laughs> Pay it forward, yes. But know this, the Bible is not like that. These stories are true. They're true. They're real people dealing with God. And, and the things that happened there, we can, we can um, believe them to be trust, trustworthy, and God will deal with us in the same way. This book of Genesis is written by a man named Moses. We've been studying this book of Genesis for some time now. This has been a, a refrain for us. Remember, it's written by Moses. No, Moses wasn't there when God did most of these things. Moses wasn't there when the, the nation of Israel is wandering through the desert in some places. You know, he wasn't involved in all of these things. But God came to him and shared these stories so that he could write them down to encourage the nation of Israel, God's people. And we think, most commentators believe, that these stories were given to Moses in, in one of two different places in the nation of Israel's history. The first possibility is that as, as uh, the nation of Israel has been rescued out of Egypt and they're making their way into the promised land, having been absent for over 400 years, and they're meandering through or wandering through the desert, they're beginning to wonder, will we ever get there? Will God ever bring us to the promised land? We can't seem to get there on our own. And it's possible that Moses got these stories from God and gave them to them to encourage them that, yes, you'll get there. The other possibility is that he wrote these stories and gave them to the nation of Israel during one of their exiles. That they, in fact, had been in the promised land, but through rebellion and disobedience to God, God allowed a neighboring nation to come in war against them and to push them away from their promised land into another part of the world. But their hope is the same. They want to come back to the promised land. They want to come to the place that God had given them. They want to come to the place where God dwells. And so these stories that we're reading are first written to Israel to be encouraged that God will help them come back if they do one thing. 
And if we're looking for a parallel in our lives, then the same thing that God asks of them, he would ask of us as well. Is that we have to begin to trust God more than ourselves. If there's any hope to get into the promised land or into the things of God, it is in fact by God's working, not our own. We cannot be self-reliant. We have to rely on who? On God. First, our assurance is in him, not in us. I mean, I, I hate to break it to you, but there's nobody in this room who's disappointed you more or lied to you more than yourself. Oh. The God you can trust. When God says, I'm going to do this in your life, he's going to do it. What we then must learn is what the Israelites learned is to stop trying to make it happen on our own and to let God do it. Yes? Yes. So... Um, that's just my long way of saying hello. Thanks for coming. Uh, <laughs> I, just, I just felt like I had to share that with you. Um, I want to pray for us, and we're going to study in Genesis chapter 32 the story of a man named Jacob. We've been studying him for some time, and looking at his life, we'll see our lives there, and I think it'd be helpful if we prayed because it might sting a little bit. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for our time together. Thank you for the truths that are contained in Scripture. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that would come and instruct us and, and help us to understand these stories. God, as we look to Scriptures to understand who you are, we know that they can apply to our lives. And so we're looking for guidance and direction. God, we love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus, through whom we have the hope of resurrection, the hope of life. And it is through Jesus alone that we have a restored relationship with you. That on our own works, on our own merits, we deserve nothing from you. But through Jesus, we get eternal life. We get to embrace this thing called the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And we thank you, Jesus, for it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name alone. Amen? Amen. Just by way of a little background, Jacob is a character that we've been studying. Um, Jacob has stolen something from his brother Esau. I don't want to go too far back into the story because we'll never get through the rest today. But Jacob has stolen something from his brother. And he's done so through deceit, through lying, through um, taking advantage of his old father who's blind. He's even blasphemed God in the middle of all of this. And when Esau, his brother, finds out that Jacob has stolen something from him, he vows to take vengeance or revenge against him. He says these words. He says, when my father eventually passes away, he's old in age, I'm going to mourn him for a period, which I think is a great thing to do. And then, first order of business, I'm going to hunt down my brother Jacob and kill him. That's the last thing Jacob hears as his mom and him pack up his, all his bags, load up the SUV, and drive away. Jacob flees his homeland, the only place that he's ever known, and he goes to dwell into the place of Haran, which is the place where his grandfather Abraham lived. And while he's there, some cool things happen. It's a lot of stuff, backstory, I can't fill you all in with that. But know this, that over the 20 years that Jacob was there, that he has amassed a large amount of wealth. He's become a very rich man. He has not one, but two wives. That's awesome. He has two wives, 11 sons, at least one daughter that we know of, many male servants and female servants, and lots and lots of livestock and donkeys. Camels, too, I think they say. 
all I'm saying, the currency of wealth in that culture and generation was his sons and his livestock. And he has a lot of that. But through some schemes and some other things that he'd done there, he is no longer welcome kind of in that land. And he decides to go back to his homeland. He wants to go back to the promised land, to the place that he was born. The only issue is what? His brother Esau is still there. And so he travels all the way back from Haran to the edge of the promised land. And he does this thing. He sends a couple of his servants across the the river there as messengers. And he goes, go tell my brother Esau that Jacob wants to come home. And so they go and they tell Esau that very thing. And then they come back to Jacob and they say, Jacob, we did what you asked. We went to your brother Esau. We saw him. We met with him. And we said that Jacob wants to come home. And Jacob's like, and what'd he say? <laughs> and, and, he's, and then the messenger said this, he's coming out to meet you. What? What? Oh, and he's bringing 400 men with him. What? <laughs> this is a war party. You know this. You know this. And he knows it as well. All of this points to one reality in his life. That Jacob has burned bridges proverbially so he can't go back to Haran. There's just things in his past that he can't go back to you. Some would say yes and amen to that. Aha. And yet the future is unreliable to him as well because if he takes one step across the Jordan River, his brother will meet him and he'll lose his life. He is stuck in his life as are maybe some of us sometimes. I mean, maybe it's not the question of life and or death, but there's something in us that just is compelling us to want to move forward, but we feel like we can't unless the Lord intervenes on our behalf. And this is the situation that Jacob finds himself in, that unless the Lord intervenes for Jacob, then he is sunk, yes? He is sunk, like it's over for him. And in this moment, Jacob does something that we've never seen Jacob do before. Genesis chapter 32 tells us that that Jacob prayed. What? He prayed. Now we see Jacob have encounters with God. He has visions with God. But never once do we read that Jacob prays to God. We knew his grandfather did, his father did, but Jacob has never prayed. And so Moses is teaching us something about Jacob's life in the situation of stuckness, if that's a thing, right? He begins to pray. And in Genesis 32, we we record Jacob's prayer. It is the longest prayer in all of Genesis. Did you know this? In all 50 chapters, this is the longest prayer we find. And it gives us insight into what's happening in Jacob's life. And I want to read some, past, some of the verses to you. Starting in verse 9. Jacob says to God, O God of my father Abraham and of the God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country, to your kindred, that they may do you good. He's going back to the homeland, not just because he has a desire to get there, but because God is calling him back there. Did you hear that? God is calling him back to a place that could could not end well for him. (laughs) Sometimes we need to understand that the things God are calling us to are very difficult and challenging. Yeah. I'll leave that, that's free. So he says, return to your country that I may do you good. And then Jacob says in verse 10, but I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds and the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. 
because I'm not worthy of everything you've given me. And in this moment, we begin to see a crack of sorts into the the pride facade, the self-reliance facade that is Jacob's life. Everything that he's done, he's schemed to get. He's, he's cheated people. He's worked, a, he's worked the system, so to speak. He's, he's come up with a way to, to get things that even didn't belong to him. But in this moment, he begins to say, but God, I, I'm not even worthy of the stuff that I have. He, in fact, he continues and just paraphrasing. He says, when I left here 20 years ago, all I had was my staff, my cane. And now I'm coming back and I have so many people. I've become too camps. I have so many people. And he says, verse 11, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. And I'm afraid that he might come and attack me. And then, and then he does this other thing that's, that's new, I think, for Jacob. Instead of just worrying about himself, he begins to pray for his wives. He prays for the mothers and for the children. And then he reminds God, and this is something you should write down sometimes, that he reminds God of what God had said to him. He says, you said I will surely do you good and make your offspring of the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude. He reminds God of the things that God had said to him. I assure you, God has not forgotten. He's just saying, don't forget this. In this moment, we see a newness of Jacob that's beginning to break forth. In this moment, Moses is telling the people of Israel that if you're going to get back to the promised land, it will not be because of what you've done, but because of what I've done done and in this moment we begin to understand that if we're going to move forward with the things of God in our life it will not be because of the things that we have done but because of the things that God is doing in us and through us this thing about prayer I was sharing with Joe and um, Jack earlier this week I, I oftentimes feel forgive me for holding up my phone but I oftentimes feel like prayer is much like our smartphones today that we can use this thing to pull up Google Maps and we can chart our waypoint as we begin to travel from point A to point B. We can use this phone like prayer can be like that. We can, we can use it to plot our course as we move forward or we can just use it to dial 911 when we find ourselves in trouble. I find oftentimes that most of our prayer is the latter of those two. Who would admit that? And okay, don't raise your hand, but who would admit that most of your prayer is like, oh no, Lord, I'm in trouble again. Oh, no, Lord, whatever shall I do? Oh, no, Lord, right? And I think that's fine. I have no problems with that. In fact, my morning was spent. Oh, Lord, I have to preach in a few minutes. Whatever shall I do? I, every week, that is a prayer. But, it, but hear me, there's also another component of prayer that's more proactive rather than reactive. We should be seeking the Lord's wisdom and his guidance in our life as we move forward. Huh. Jacob's in this place with bended knee, a, a picture of sorts of a man who's being reshaped, reshapen, reshaped. <laughs> He's being made different. Something's happening. And, and, and we're almost to this place where uh, an encounter that Jacob has with, with someone that's it's life-changing. The, the last night before he's going to cross over the river to enter the promised land to, I guess, meet his brother head on. He sends his wives and all his children across the river and he finds himself alone, alone on the shore, alone with none of his wealth, none of his livestock, none of his support staff, none of his servants, not even a wife to lend a, an ear to listen to him bemoan his situation. He's alone. 
And, and starting in verse 22, we pick up a pretty interesting story. It says that same night he arose and he takes his wives and his female servants and all his children and he crosses the, fo- the fort of the Jabbok and he takes them and sends them across the stream. And then verse 24, Jacob was left alone. And then it says a man came in to where Jacob was and wrestled with him. Now, I want you to understand this. It's pitch dark. He has no idea who this person is. And I'm, I'm convinced at some point he's thinking Esau has come across the river and he's come to kill me. And it says that a fight ensues. Wrestling maybe is a, an understatement of sorts. <laughs> a fight ensues and they fight until daybreak. That they fight until the sun comes up. This is a long, drawn out fight. And it says in verse 25, when the man that was wrestling with Jacob, when he realized that he was not going to win or prevail against Jacob, it says that he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint. That's a strange thing, but know what this meant to Jacob. He began to understand this is no mere mortal that I'm wrestling with. I mean, who can touch someone's hip and knock it out of joint? In this moment, I believe, Jacob begins to understand he's not wrestling his brother Esau, not just a mere guy, but he's wrestling some supernatural thing, some, some, something that's above the natural. In fact, there's a possibility that, that Jacob begins to believe that he's wrestling with God himself. Now he's wounded and he can't fight back with his full force. And it says that the, 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 this man, God possibly, is trying to just push Jacob off of him. And he's like, and he says these words to him. He says, let me go. He says, let me go for the day has broken. And Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me, he says. Now we know Jacob has it figured out. He, he's no dummy, that Jacob. He is wrestling with God. And he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. I will not let you go until you step into this situation of my life. I will not let you go until you do something with my brother. I will not let you go until you deal with those bridges that I burned, you know, back in my hometown in Haran or whatever. I will not let you go until you forgive me for the things that I've done. I will not let you go until you let me sleep with no shame. I will not let you go until you come into my life, he says. He's ready to be blessed by God. But the stranger, God is not ready to bless Jacob yet. Or maybe Jacob's not really, really ready to be blessed yet. There's this, there's an exposing of Jacob's life that has to happen first. Maybe you know it to be true too. Maybe from your own experience that you've, That before God could really do something really profound in your life, you had to have this understanding that without him, I'm sunk. Without God intervening, there's nothing that I can do. And it's in this moment that God asks Jacob one question. He says, what's your name? Jacob responds, my name is Jacob. This is probably the perfect time to remind you what Jacob's name means. It means heel catcher right? Which is, that's a strange name for a son, I admit. (laughs) It just means this, that he's constantly been living his life tripping up the, the people in front of him so that he can overtake them and take what belongs to them. His name means deceiver. His name means cheater. When God asks him, what's your name? He's saying, tell me your story. And Jacob responds, my name is Jacob. My name is 
liar. My name is deceiver. My name is cheater. My name is shame. My name is, and on and on it goes. And it's this moment when his, the reality of his uncleanness before the righteous and holy God is so profound that he cannot help but answer with the truth. Isaiah the prophet, as I was studying this week, I was reminded of the story. Isaiah the prophet has a vision of God and he goes to the throne room of God. He sees God sitting on the throne. What does that look like? Around him are angels and seraphim and his music and praising and all kinds of stuff. And, and here's Isaiah standing here going, what is, why am I even here? And he says these words, woe to me for I'm a man of unclean lips. In the presence of God, he sees his iniquity. Hear me, I love all of you. God cannot, and and he cannot move forward until we understand that our reliance is in him alone. It is him alone. He's not asking you to partner with him in saving you. He's not asking you to partner with him in, in carving your way into the kingdom of God. He's not asking you to do that. He's saying, you're broken, you're a liar, you're a stealer, and I can help you. You have to admit it first. I think this is the last undoing of Jacob. I think this is, I mean, he first prayed and that was kind of awesome. And now God pushes in. He says, everything that you think you are, you need to admit it to me. And in, in that moment, God steps in and changes something. The place of the promised land, oftentimes in the Old Testament, is a shadow or a picture of something that we'll read about in the New Testament. Oftentimes, things in the Old Testament have something that's fulfilled in the New Testament. And, and the promised land is a picture of what, we, what Jesus calls in the Gospels the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, which are truly the same thing. They're used interchangeably. In fact, Jesus uses them interchangeably in Matthew's Gospel. But to enter the promised land, or what Jesus would say, to enter the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says in Luke chapter 13 that only few enter it. And he says there's a very narrow door by which you enter it. And I'm telling you, what Jesus is alluding to is that you cannot get through on your own reliance, but on the reliance of God alone. The narrow door is there. He says that there's going to be a lot of people coming, and many of them, he says, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth because they will not get through They're going to say, but wait, we've served you. We've been with you. And and he's saying, no. Jesus continues this idea in Luke chapter 18. And he says that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven belongs to children. Children. You want the kingdom of God, then you have to be a child to receive it. What is Jesus saying? (laughs) Children don't provide for themselves. Yes? They're not supposed to. We cut up their sausages and sample it first. We, or twice. I'm, in, I'm dad, I'm in charge. I got to make sure this is safe. The reliance that a child has on the adult is profound. Jesus says, you want the kingdom of heaven? You want the kingdom of God? You want to enter into that thing that God is leading you towards? Then you cannot do it on your own. You must rely on someone else. I'll give you a hint who that someone else is. He's our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Jesus even has this comical moment with his disciples one time, and he says it's easier for a a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
Picture how ridiculous that sounds. An eye of a needle that you, you know, so close with that it's, it's easier for a large mammal to make its way through it than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is not against riches here, guys. I mean, go prosper and be wealthy. It's, it's about this. At some point, you're going to be made low. At some point, your riches cannot help you. You cannot buy your way. You cannot do anything. The only way through the door is, is humility and reliance upon God alone. Jacob is having this experience. Moses is telling this to the nation of Israel. You and I are reading it to reinforce this idea in our lives. All through our lives, God will continually pull us back to where he is. The, the church calls this repentance. It's a big churchy word. It just means stop thinking that way. Stop doing those things and return to where God is. If Jacob's going to move forward, it is only through the power of God. If he's going to live through the night, it is only through God. I will not let you go until you bless me, he says. Well, God says, well, then who are you? And when he confesses his shortcomings and his sins before a just and perfect and holy God, God blesses him. He even changes his name. And he says in verse 28, he says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, your name shall no longer be called deceiver, surplanter, heel catcher, liar, cheater, adulterer. Your name shall be called Israel, which just means he who strives with God. In this moment, he gets a name change, but I assure you, it's more than a name change. His, his world has changed. His life has changed. His character has has changed. Jacob has been made new. Jacob has been born again. Jacob has come out of the darkness into the light. In fact, God shares that detail in the story. And they wrestled till daybreak. No longer is Jacob in the dark. He sees the light and a new day has dawned for him to move on into. Huh. That sounded more feminine than I intended it to be. <laughs> Forgive me. <clears throat> yes. You see it, right? You see it? This is what God does for us. He pulls us out of our own despair and darkness and leads us into the light. He changes not just our name, but our very nature. He changes our, our pursuits, our passions, and and all of this. No longer will you be called Jacob, but Israel. And it says that Jacob then asked him, well, please tell me your name. Why is it that you ask my name? So Jacob, God doesn't answer. I love that. So Jacob called the name of that place where this encounter had Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed from there, limping because of his hip. You know, I've always heard people preach this passage and they always say things like that. True godly encounters will cause you to be changed. 
you know, and someone once said this too, never trust a man who doesn't walk with a limp. I'm like, okay. So Captain Ahab then, just wondering. Look at that verse 31 again. It says, the sun rose. There's a very constant reminder in our lives that time marches on. It doesn't wait for anyone. In all of this, it's probably easy for Jacob to forget that Esau's marching with 400 men. He's having this godly moment. And yet when he wakes up out of that, whatever this was, the sun is up and now I have to start. What is he going to do? He has to make some changes. He's declared that he's going to pray. I mean, he's praying for his wives and his children. He's, he's already seen the humility come into his life. He's already beginning to rely on God more. He's beginning to step out into this understanding that God is leading him and helping him. That's a real thing for me. Just as of late. I don't know about you, but some weeks are pretty hard. Yes? And I feel stuck kind of, you know, a little in my life. And I won't bore you with the details. And you're like, no, yes, please bore us with the details. <laughs> right? But, I mean, I think all of us feel similarly in that way. That there's just, there's a progress that we know is available to us, but yet we seem to be stuck by it. close with this last idea and hopefully this will be helpful to us as, as Jacob leaves in that next new day the, the newness of his new life um, he runs into Esau he runs into Esau and 400 men and, and the change that happened hear me in not just Jacob's life through that encounter with God not just how Jacob was changed, but in that moment through the prayer and the wrestling with God and trusting God and, and letting God have his way, in that moment, God began to change the lives of other people. So when Esau comes with 400 men to destroy his brother, something in the middle of his night changed his mind as well. It says that when Esau saw Jacob, Esau ran to him. And you can see Jacob like, here we go. <laughs> Uh, waiting for it. And it says that he embraced him. They fell to their knees and they wept. He kissed him on the neck and he received him back home. To enter into the promised land will require God to change the hearts and minds of other people. To enter into the things that God has for you and I will require God, re require God to change the minds and the hearts of other people. Who's changing their hearts and their minds? God is. It's not you. If they would just see that God's called me to this, if they could just believe me, if my wife would just understand this, if my children would just obey me, if, and on and on it goes, I'm trying to go into this thing that God has called me to, but I cannot persuade someone to believe something they do not believe. And in prayer, through wrestling with God, God begins to change not just your heart, 
not just my heart, but the hearts of the people closest. The hearts of the people who seem to be holding the door closed for you to walk into the very thing that God wants for you. If you're visiting here at Renaissance, um, I'm notorious for ending badly. So here it is. I'm done. I have nothing else to say. <laughs> like, I wish I could be that guy who, like, just wraps it all up and just drops the mic and walks out the door. And everybody's like, oh, my gosh, it was so awesome. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> but I know this, that God was here today. Yeah, he was here. And I, you know how I know? Because I invited him. I asked him to come. I said, Lord, would you come? Would you bring your Holy Spirit? Would you, would you talk to your people? Would you, would you chip away at their self-reliance? Would you chip away at their pride? Would you help them understand humility in the way of God? That the, that the narrow door that, that you're calling them through is in Jesus' work alone. It's not in our work. God, would you free them to be to be able to move into that thing that you want them to move into. I've prayed for healings this morning already. Talked to a friend of mine who has back issues. I have another friend who has a very similar back issue. Surgery is required. I'm praying that Jesus heal their backs. Talk to married couples who I know are having issues. <laughs> You're like, uh. I've seen children here this morning that I pray would trust their parents' leadership. I've prayed for my own child as I saw her this morning, which blew my mind because I hardly ever see my kids at church. It's not that they don't come, I just never see them. And I saw her and I, she ran by my heart, just went, God bless her, God bless her, God help her. God, whatever she hears in youth group this morning, God, make it make sense to her. As you guys walked in, I stand back here and I look out at you, and sometimes you guys think it's creepy and weird, but I have to, it is, I know. <laughs> it is. It's my favorite thing. And it's like, <laughs> I need to see you. I need to see that God's doing something in you. He's doing something. Ah. My uh, encouragement, exhortation, admonition to all of you is to stop striving so hard for that which God has already given you and to just go with him. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. God, again, we thank you for our time together. How fun is it to be able to open the Bible and to see the stories of men like Jacob and Esau and to be encouraged into the things of new life. God, thank you for our time together. May we use the next few moments to then declare your goodness, to sing of your love and compassion towards us, to be reminded in song and singing of all the good things that you done. 
God, we love you and we thank you for everything that you have done for us and everything that you will continue to do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Together we can reach the heart of Decatur. And if you'd like to be a part of that, go to rendicator.org backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them.